Welcome to Deconstructing Yourself, the podcast for metamodern mutants interested in meditation, hardcore dharma, unfindability, the god Dionysus, old copies of Metal Hurlant, awakening, vividness, and much more. My name is Michael Taft, your host on this podcast, and in this episode, I'm speaking once again with Eric Davis. Eric Davis is an author, podcaster, award-winning journalist, and popular speaker based in San Francisco. He is probably best known for his book, Technosis, a cult classic of visionary media studies that investigates how our fascination with technology intersects with the religious imagination. Eric's most recent book is High Weirdness, Drugs, Esoterica, and Visionary Experience in the 70s, and he is also a long-term practitioner of meditation, particularly in the Zen tradition. Eric is a good friend of mine, and so we felt comfortable meeting and recording this podcast actually in person, under conditions of social distancing, and you'll hear us talk about that a bit in the program. And now, without further ado, I give you the episode that I call Paranoia, Conspiracy, and COVID with Eric Davis. Eric, welcome back to the Deconstructing Yourself podcast. Happy to be here, man. And I just want to confess in public that here we are in the same room with no masks on, which is somehow like extra exciting or dangerous or something. We are not masked. Yeah. Yeah. There's just a handful of people I've had that experience with recently. I think you might be the only person, except if I'm like outside on the beach and 10 feet away. Yeah. That has occurred, but actually with another person still maybe 10 feet away, but in the same room, that hasn't happened in months except with my cat and my bird and my wife. Yeah, we had one person in our building who lives across the hall and we, you know, kind of house sit their dog and she's super paranoid. So we just kind of included her in the germ pod. It's kind of like polyamory. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh yeah, what levels of safety and you got to trust people that they're doing what they're saying And then once they're inside, there's this kind of intimacy. And there was her, and then there was one friend who was a block away. And we just said, look, we're going to be so much saner if we have one other place that we can go visit. But he's moving, so that's gone. So it's about five people. Well, and I think almost anything could work for a month or two. But now here we are. It's July. It's been going on since March. How are you handling it all? You know, the analogy for me is it's like the brake pads. You know how they start to squeak when they let you know that there's like 20% (laughs) left? It's like I'm definitely squeaking now. Like I still got the brake pad. Like I'm not down to the metal, but I can hear the squeaks. And I'm thinking ahead. I'm like going, wow, I don't know. I mean, I'm a reader and a writer and a meditator. It's actually not that hard for me. My life isn't even that different. Yeah. So I think I'll be able to make it through, but it's a little squeaky. So what exactly is squeaking? It's interesting. Living in the city is interesting because you see another side of the city. I've lived in cities since I was 20. And, you know, there's an interesting dialectic in the city between alienated loneliness and the exuberance of crowds and collectives. And you're kind of like modulating between those. And... There's just so much more alienation now. And I'm a pretty empathic person, not in the sense that I'm touchy-feely or or gushy emotional guy, but I pick up emotions and feelings very easily. It's like why I'm a good anthropologist. I can go into a room and I get a sense of like what the vibe is, what the scene is, who's the person I'm going to like. Like I usually tell whether I'm going to like somebody in about 10, 15 seconds, literally. Like I'm like, oh, that person's going to be my friend. So when you have that kind of radar and then you go through urban space where everyone is like hunkered down and they got their masks, they don't want to look at you a lot of the time, or you're like navigating <laughs> the sidewalk and you know, are, how cautious are they? Are they angry at you because you're being less cautious? And there's this just very draining and it's the opposite of the kind of buoyancy and energy you get from a city in a good way where you're just kind of picking up the ambient enthusiasm and hyperactivity so it's a time where i really kind of wish i lived in a cabin in the woods but i don't live in a cabin in the woods. luckily i live in a beautiful place so it's 
it's all right, but uh, your, your city cabin, my city cabin. Yeah, I feel kind of like I live in a village. You know, I live in the village of Coal Valley in this larger <laughs> metropolis area. San Francisco is like this science fiction city on the other side of the hill, but where I live is just a kind of nice little village that just goes on forever. So you're getting the bad part of a city without any of the good part. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a lot about how other people are and feeling more disconnected and even threatened or that there's some feeling of threat with other people. Everybody's a question mark. How are they feeling? Do they have it? And I'm not that paranoid, but it's just change that ambient vibe. And not always, you know, like I think the beach is the great exception because you go to the beach and, you know, our ocean beach out here is, is really wide except on a really busy day where I don't go. But like if it's the middle of the week, you go and people are like, they have their dogs, they have their kids, and you can comfortably be 25 feet away from almost everybody. And the wind is 100 miles an hour. And the wind is in your face and you're approximate to wild nature, to unhuman space. And it just feels clean and, and spacious. And so there I feel a sense of connection with other people and a kind of joy and even being together as humans enjoying the beach that's a great respite from the rest of the experience yeah there's a similar vibe at alameda beach i forget the actual name of the beach but anyway the beach at alameda where you can be more than far enough away from everybody plus the wind is so strong that whatever anybody would be coughing out is you know rushing away from you very quickly. And you see, suddenly there's a sense of joy and freedom and people are being together without being too close. I'll have to say it's one of the better vibes you find out there. Whereas if I, even now the park, I usually walk in, you know, it does have a like, turn your collar up and face away. And, you know, don't pet the dog because you might be transmitting germs onto the dog. And if someone's not wearing a mask, it's just pariah hood, you know, it's like everyone's giving them the evil eye and probably should be. And, you know, it's not that much fun. Yeah, I agree. Walking through the park, I'll do it on occasion. Luckily, there's some paths near me that on the right time of day, there's not usually very many people. But my favorite way of going through the park is on my bike. But the bikes are also great for the situation because you get to be out there, you're getting exercise, it's super safe. You know, I'll wear like a snowboarder mask over my face, even probably don't even need to, but it's just, there's a sense of freedom and you're with people who are also riding, but they're not that close. And so that side of it, I find really strange. I mean, it's really interesting in a lot of ways. And I'm glad I find things interesting, even if they're off-putting and even horrible. I've developed that skill or temperament long ago where like, I don't turn away you know, if something's disgusting, I'm like fascinated by my reaction. So sure. difficulties are more interesting to me than I think they are for a lot of people, even if still that can get me down. It's still very interesting to me. And even the grueling aspect of it is kind of interesting to me, like how that manifests and how am I going to try to outrun the gruelingness today and how that fails and how I react to it failing. And I mean, there is something just fascinating about it on a personal level, how to practice with it. But then there's also a bigger question of like my generation, and I think in certainly younger generations, you know, history with a capital H didn't really ever happen. You might say that 9-11 was history with a capital H, meaning that the actual fabric of your immediate world felt altered in some collective, significant, world-changing way that wasn't going to go back. Yeah, 9-11 definitely fits the bill there. Right, but that was like a punctuated moment, like a pow. And this is like a just a state. It's just like a landscape. It <laughs> keeps just, going and that's going. It's just yeah. going off into... It's like a two-edged sword. The more you get used to it, the more you have to accept that you have entered into a new historical period and that you're not going back. So you kind of want it to be episodic, it's not episodic. So there's that kind of like wrestling with what it means to be marked by historical moment and to be caught up in waves. And some of the waves are good. Like Black Lives Matter is a wave. Yeah, It's going to bowl over all sorts of stuff. And much of it has to go. And some of it's good. You know, there's people who get caught up or they're at the right and they didn't mean to be there or whatever it is. It's like there's something bigger that you have to just kind of go great, history's changing, there's something dynamic going. So it's not all negative, the sense of being caught up in history that we're feeling right now. But it's definitely different than the way I've lived most of my life, where I could come to my own terms with how much I'm engaging the historical moment. Now there's less room for negotiation. 
Yeah, I think when the COVID crisis came on, I think I immediately felt like, oh, this is one of those things we're never going back. There is no going back. For whatever reason, it just set off my radar like this is forever. I don't mean we'll be, you know, in lockdown forever, but it's a permanent historical shift, right? And what's interesting is that I think for since 9-11, maybe, very little, and this is what you're saying anyway, but very little has felt that way. It feels like you can just keep hitting reset and everything will be okay. And, and of course, in the background, there's enormous stuff permanently changing, like the environment is going to shit and never going to come back unless we do something pretty major. But it was easy to somehow keep invisible the culture or the media or whatever was making it really easy to kind of pretend that wasn't happening. And even those of us who were really trying to make it visible and trying to not pretend, there's still this strange lull because people around you are ignoring it. Exactly. If you are in tune with other people, it's like there's a dead spot there, right? But with this, there's no dead spot anymore. Everyone is activated. I mean, I still know people who believe it's a hoax, you know, people who think that all kinds of crazy stuff is going on, all kinds of conspiracy stuff, whatever. But none of them are denying that something huge is happening and has happened, right? So boom, we hit a real historical moment. Yeah. And it's such a strange thing to say because it feels like, for example, the 20th century was nothing but a bunch of really intense historical moments. The whole thing. And how we got into this ahistorical, you know, like glutinous mass of oatmeal, I don't know. But it feels like we're coming out. Yeah. 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 So what is that thing? How can you just go into this post-historical, non-time... Isn't that just another example of how we can fall asleep? You know, as you say, like, even if you're a news reader, like I am, like always keeping up on, you know, the state of the crisis and what countries are falling apart and what's happening to the economy or even the financial crisis in 2008, like it didn't really affect me directly, you know, when it's some numbers on a screen way, but not in a, in your face way. And even though it was clearly producing visible changes in the United States and where I live or whatever, it still just didn't quite hit the mind. And I think partly because our egos buffer us, you know, we want to live in a bubble. We kind of constantly recreate that bubble as we're really good at breaking it apart or we're really intentional about the process. You know, in a way that's part of what deconstructing yourself is, is that you have to be aware that there's another part of you that's always seeking a kind of homeostatic buffer space around us. And it's not a bad thing. It's part of what makes human life enjoyable. You know, you have the pleasures of domesticity or of your routine or of the people in your neighborhood or the bars you go to or whatever. I mean, that's that familiarity is part of what we do is that we create these familiar environments, sometimes in very precarious circumstances. So you're in a war camp and it's just a nightmare and there's rats and the food is terrible, but there's still like the corner where you go where you play cards or you're still gossiping about the people over there. And human beings have this capacity to kind of recreate a sort of funky human reality almost in any circumstance. Yeah. So in some ways it's kind of nice and like I'm relying on that now to make my everyday not be a you know confrontation with the void and all of you know the historical <laughs> chaos. Some days I want a day off, but it also means it's just very easy, especially if you're not trying, to peer beyond that and see how the world outside that bubble is changing. And even if you're, as I said, you're taking in the news, you're tracking it, you're following the environment, you're following international politics, you see the changes in your society, you see what's going on in Washington, there's still on this like unconscious level, a desire to maintain a sort of coherence around your world. And so I think in some ways, it's good to shake it up. It's good for people to, it's kind of tried to talk about a silver lining. Nobody really wants to be in the situation, but there does seem to be some, at least the possibility of some. And one that I am working on myself and hoping other people are is like, what do you really want back? What are you really missing? 
Yeah. Not the thing that you think you want because we're doing this thing. You have some project and some plan to manifest some desire or achieve some power or make something happen in the world. And now you're like, well, none of that's really happening. And, you know, people are dying. Maybe people in my family or my parents are freaked out or whatever the situation is. Or like, oh, I'm dealing with financial collapse or that whole business that I was invested in is like, not. it's not going to happen. So what am I going to do? Maybe I'm not going to have that much money. What what do I do with the money that I have? How do you like actually redefine value? Because our sense of value is so off off reality, <laughs> and it still is. And I think it's kind of almost a race. Can people become sort of realistically reframed, or you know, rejigger their value system so that they're able to appreciate more of their now constrained lives in a way that actually allows us possibly to then translate that into the reduced expectations that allow us to let go of some of the really exploitative, excessive, consumerist excesses, power demands, all the ways in which we were just sucking energy out of the system you know, individually, collectively. And, you know, maybe this helps re, you know, shift the window of what value is as just a way to survive in a difficult situation that then enables us to change our larger value set when hopefully we come out on the other end or crawl out another direction. (laughs) Well, certainly the thing that I see happening for lots of people is this is a moment, whether it's a silver lining, whether it's something they want or don't want, it's a moment where you must reevaluate your whole life. And you must reevaluate your whole life, not only in terms of your big goals and your big plans and all that, but it's in a way that is about something that might matter even a lot more, which is the micro actions of each day, all the little things you do, all the little interactions all the, I go to this store and I go to this coffee shop and I drive here and I talk to this person and do that. Every single one of those little micro interactions comes into question or gets chopped off and then you have to evaluate it. Or, you know, now it's fraught with some kind of paranoid tension and it's a new thing entirely. Or you were medicating yourself with some kind of fast food or whatever and now that's gone. It's so interesting because the structure of this is making us get out the microscope or the magnifying glass and look at everything I was doing all day long. And I think you're bringing up an important point, which is like so much of that was either about maintaining the state of sleep or helping you to go to sleep and just stay in the dream and stay distracted and stay checked out and stay dissociated and stay in some kind of pseudo-resilience bubble made of kind of rubber and plastic that people build around themselves because reality is just too intense. Mm -hmm. And so that has just gotten shredded. And you see how difficult that is for lots of folks, right? And watching them try to manage literally manage all those little micro details of life in a new way to, well, for lots of different reasons, right? Or for lots of different goals, but trying to make it through. And what I think is really an interesting, let's say, side effect of this grand cultural thing where we also have to examine every little moment and we can't fall asleep is like the spike of paranoia and all the conspiracy theory, paranoid stuff that's just coming out of the woodwork. What are you seeing in that realm? Yeah, that's a whole thing. I mean, it's something I've been tracking my whole life. I've always been interested in conspiracy theories and weird religions and the kind of esotericism aren't we Aren't we due for a new religion right now? I mean, it seems like there's one on the horizon. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, I mean, I, there's some people who call QAnon a religion. I think it's actually a fair argument to say that in, in some ways what is happening with a lot of the conspiracy theories now is that they are serving as religion at a time that people aren't up for old school religions and nothing better's come down the pike. I mean, with a lot of these scenarios, why are people so into them? What do people get out of them? Like they're got to be getting off somehow or you wouldn't have that spread. Even if it's true, there's a lot of truths out there 
that people aren't, you know, screaming from the top of, you know, of their buildings or, you know, wearing the insignia at, at football games because they want to communicate the truth. It's not about because it's true. It's providing something for people. Isn't it that it's the secret truth? That's part of it. You know, it's what I call the kind of Gnostic psychology in conspiracy theories. You're in the esoteric in crowd, right? You know the secret truth. Yeah, and it's got two faces. The one is that I am now hip to the secret truth. I know the truth behind the surface. My feelings that something was wrong have been confirmed, and I'm in the know. But at the same time, that very idea helps you explain why, if it's the case, that your life is still confusing or a drag or that you're not getting the girl or you're not getting the job or everything sucks or you're alienated or you're depressed or whatever the reason is because you know that the power structure is actually this other thing but they're not going to let you get away with it or that's not enough so you have an explanation both for your alienation and for what makes your point of view special it also gives you an identity i'm now the one who knows And there's a clear distinction between the good people who know. Well, who are against child abuse. Right, right? against the utter evil that then is stained throughout the whole structure. So even if you are not yourself a Hollywood pederast, the fact that you see those movies and that you're not on the QAnon train shows that you're actually a dupe. Yeah. You know, and it's the whole thing about being a dupe is a fascinating psychological attraction it's very attractive to not be a dupe and think that the other people are dupes but like jacques lacan has a whole line about this about how like les non du père meaning like the people who are not dupes are air in their very belief that you're not duping that part of being mature both intellectually and spiritually is that you know that you're kind of duped and you have to work within this like process of waking up to your dupidness your dupehood your dupehood letting it go and knowing that where you land is another kind of dupishness but the clear idea that i now know and i'm not a dupe is incredibly satisfying at a time when nobody really knows what's going on i mean to me one of the biggest paradoxes the most hilarious paradoxes is anybody paying attention now i've said this before anybody paying attention now It's totally clear that things, however you want to characterize them, are incredibly complicated and confusing. Yes. And yet, if you look at social media, if you look at the exploding pundit-verse, all of these commentators, all of these analysts and meme engineers and YouTube hosts and all of this material in the media, they all know. And it's easy. They can simplify it, right? You know, so everybody knows and they don't go, you know, anything that we say about the world has to start with the fact that the world is always really complicated, but it's particularly complicated now. And no one person is even able to really understand the degrees of complexity that are, you know, impinging on them personally, let alone all of the topics from quantum computing to climate to, you know, international finance, et cetera, et cetera, each one of which is more complicated than any one person can deal with. So that doesn't mean we give up and stop trying to think and coming up with conclusions, but that has to be where you start. Right. People don't want to start there. They don't even want to think about that. And it's scary. So that's another reason it's very clear, but it's a weird kind of religion. And maybe I should say more about, like, well, that is that really a religion? No, there's some other things that make it a religion. One is that most of these narratives rest on the idea that there's like a real evil, capital E, And then there's the good people who know about the real evil and are spreading the news. And the spreading the news is just good old evangelism. You know, it's like spread the good news, except it's not good anymore. It's actually spread the bad news, but the spreading still has the form of evangelical awakening. Like, I know here, here's the data, here's the book, here's the holy book. See the way? See, see, see? Oh, wait, it's all coming together. I can watch it. I Oh, you're converted now. And in fact, people go through essentially conversion processes as they find themselves inside of these new narratives some of which may be true, some of which I actually kind of believe, whatever. I don't want to go into the specifics because obviously whatever specific thing might be true, there's a vast world of totally kooky ideas that many, many people are swallowing. And so it has a nature of conversion, has this quality of evangelism that drives the thing, evangelism. 
And it's got this good and evil narrative. And then finally, for the coup de grace, a lot of them, not all, but a lot of them have an apocalyptic structure mm-hmm. where the revelation is just around the corner. The singularity, the disclosure in UFO stuff, it's about the disclosure. It's always right around the corner. They're about to let us know that, yes, the aliens have been here all along and Roswell, and they, that's how we get the technology came from and the integrated circuit. And now we know and da-da-da. Woo! You know, it's like... The, the know, big moment, And yeah. if you read all that stuff, it's all predecessed on this kind of like apocalyptic moment that's just around the corner. And that's clearly an extremely successful strategy for human brains because uh, messianic religions have been doing this for centuries and centuries and centuries it works really well and so in some ways our brains are wired for religion and when you're in a post-religious age how does that work i think in a way secularism and the 20th century and the kind of pact that was made with the middle class, et cetera, was a way of kind of like keeping the craziness in check with a kind of available hedonism, a certain kind of media distraction, but with the agreement that you'd still stay sort of locked within this kind of secular mind frame. And now that all these consensuses are breaking apart, mass media is no longer mass, there's so many different things that are happening, our more natural tendency to be religious is now manifesting in this post-religious environment. And one of the main forms it takes is conspiracy theory. Who was it? Maybe Teilhard de Chardin. I can't remember, but there's someone who was talking about the absurdity of the Christian mass and the transmutation of the host and all that. It was the fact that it is absurd and unbelievable that makes it mystical that makes it important or makes it spiritual, right? I can't remember who said that. Yeah, it's Tertullian. He was an early church father. There we go. Yeah. Thank you. And I see something similar happening here where the conspiracy must be totally insane to have the right amount of juice, right? Mm. It's not that some parts of it aren't completely reasonable and some parts of it aren't possible or normal or like fit science or whatever. Some parts do, but there's always these elements that are just completely cracked. And there's something about that that provides, it's like the catalyst. Mm -hmm. You've got the couple ingredients for a religion, but the catalyst is always something completely insane that you have to buy into. Yeah, I think that's true. I think one way of thinking about it is like the role that fiction plays in our world construction. And from within conspiracy theory, one of my favorite ideas is this idea of the revelation of the method. And this is the idea that, let's say, you know, the Illuminati is controlling media and they're using media to program people. And that's why if you like look at certain hip hop videos, right, or Katy Perry video, you can see that it's actually an allegory of like the Illuminati and the power <laughs> structure and all that kind of stuff. Well, no, that's not a conspiracy theory. That's real. Well, I mean, it is true that <laughs> some people making these videos know about this story and are screwing with this. Yeah. That is clear. There's too much symbology, whatever. But these symbols are out there. And so the revelation of the method is the idea that they can actually tell you and show you actually what they're doing at certain points because it, in a way, it gives them even more power. It's like they're not hiding what they're doing. So you can look at certain science fiction film or this news report or whatever that actually shows what they're doing. So it's like the revelation of the method. But in a way, you can take that same idea and apply it to these conspiracy theories in a more critical way, where it has to have an absurd element, which is kind of like, that's what it is. So if you can swallow that, then you will get this whole package, which means, again, something that's satisfying. There's something very satisfying about these. And until we understand the emotional or affective level of conspiracies and not just conspiracies, but also, you know, political obsessions and how we're manipulated through even mainstream political stories. You know, I think the example of speaking of somebody who's a progressive is like the way in which the children being separated from their parents on the border. Okay, that's happening. That's horrible. I have a emotional response to that. I'm angry. 
But the way that that then gets used, and you can see how it's charted in the media, how it produces response because it's hit, it's found an affect that it can really ride. And so once that's happening, even just from the banal conspiracy of trying to get more attention to certain media sources, but it's got deeper elements than that as well. And so that we're being played by narratives that engage our emotions at a very deep level that we're not always aware of. And so I've been talking about conspiracy theories. They engage certain kinds of emotions that have to do with being the one who knows or being horrified or seeing an evil but not being of the evil. You know, there's a whole bunch of elements of that. But in some ways, the whole game now is like this narrative warfare that's coming from multiple agencies, including ones that probably have some of our best interests at heart, but mostly not. And they're not just stories. They're stories that are riding or triggering or exploiting the whole range of human psychology. You know, it's our narrative organizations or our religious hardwiring, but also all of these emotions. So if you want to wake up in the midst of this as best you can, one of the things you do is you have to get really familiar with aspects of emotion that aren't very pleasant because they're some of the ones that are the most hidden, perverse emotions, angers you would never want to admit, bitterness you don't want to admit, even you know racism that's tucked back in there. So this one kind of argument to people who aren't, oh, I'm not a racist, I'm not a racist, but then from the outside you can say, no, actually that's looking pretty racist. But the person who's feeling that might not actually see it because right. they haven't really gotten into that little, you know, nasty but somehow delicious position or feeling or whatever. And that's true with all sorts of these things. So in a weird way, if you want to like flip it on its head, we're in this thing where we get to like, by actually tracking which narratives seem appealing to you, you can use that to then deconstruct the emotional substrate of those narratives. And, you know, one of the reasons I'm interested in conspiracy theory is that I'm a little paranoid. I've had paranoid psychedelic trips. After 9-11, I was sort of like kind of paranoid for about a year and a half. Like I'd have weird dreams that were like dark and conspiratorial, UFOs. I have this memory in my head of like these guys coming to the door. And I'm like, that must have been something I was fantasized. Maybe that actually happened. You know, like those kind of memories that have are you, also Have you counted dreams. how many vertebrae you have? <laughs> no, I haven't, man. No, I've, I've, I've got this weird lump over here. I almost don't want to know. I mean, yeah. it's, you know, one of uh, Thomas Pinchy's got, and the Gravity's Rainbow is all about conspiracy and paranoia in a lot of ways. And he has these proverbs for paranoids that are scattered through the text. And I, one of the ones, I think the one that stuck with me the most this time is basically the idea is that paranoids aren't paranoid just on their own. Paranoids are paranoid because they keep putting themselves in paranoid situations meaning they keep looking for it. Yeah, it's, and, it's exciting on Right, some level. exactly. Yeah. And I've known that excitement. I've ridden that kind of vibe. And so I feel like part of my attraction to some of this material is precisely because it draws up that feeling. I, mean, I remember years ago, before all of the big anti-vaxxer stuff, you know, like 10 years ago, for whatever reason, I was reading some kind of scenario of like thought control and vaccines and forced vaccination. And I realized that at that moment I had a fully libertarian, you know, fuck you feeling that if someone was going to try to force vaccination on me, I wasn't going to do it. Yeah. Like I was like, no way. That's my line in the sand. And I got super into it. Like I was into it. And so then down the road, I didn't really think about it. It didn't become like an important political part of my life, but I recognized that that was my paranoid line in the sand. And then later on, I've got, oh, wait, uh, mm, oh, oh, wait, that that thing is like a thing that then gets played, like a, a chord that gets played by an outside hand. Well, what is that feeling? What's in there? Fear, uh, lack of control, uh, you're going to die. And then you get down to the really gushy, gooey stuff where mm -hmm. like, oh, wait, I'm out of control. I'm kind of crazy. I'm not who I think I am and I'm going to die. Me and everything around me is going to go away. The core Buddhist stuff. Right. And then you're like, oh, I think I'll work on that rather than this other stuff and just deal with those issues as they arise. If they're in my face, okay, but people don't do that. Instead, they go looking, as in Pynchon's line, they go looking for the material that's going to make them paranoid, which is almost like asking for a mind virus to come in wire up your fears and 
hateful desires and bitterness and sense of lack of control into a crystalline narrative that kind of sings with its coherence, giving you a sense of coherence. Giving you a really solid sense of self. Yeah, a really solid sense of self. They're so repetitive. It's like, this again? You know, like I read like these like common threads and I go, you guys all sound like you're robots saying this stuff. It's the same like, oh, well, what about chink, chink, chink? Yeah, like I did that. I read that post. Doesn't mean I'm going to just like repeat it all the time. So, you know, it's a very strange phenomenon and it's clearly extremely successful in our current environment. Yeah. Well, especially when there's so much uncertainty and so much complexity and so much to really be paranoid about. It's a perfectly, what's the word? Everyone is kind of susceptible or they don't have their immune system up. You know, maybe after all this, we'll have herd immunity for memes or something. You know, like whoever survives will have an extra strong ability to just see what's going on with memes. I don't know. Yeah, I would hope so. What are you noticing as a (laughs) cultural historian? You're out there checking out all the vibes and you've been following them. Like what's the right now? We're kind of busting on QAnon, but that's sort of gigantic already. What's the really weird shit you're seeing in the quarters of conspiracy or weirdness? You know, I mean, I have to say that currently, I don't know if I have a... Actually, that's not true. I just thought of something else that's more positive or more interesting to me, which is how people are turning towards divination in new, technologically sophisticated ways. And... I say that's a positive thing because while divination can produce these sort of synchronicities that then can be part of a paranoid structure that's leading you deeper and down the rabbit hole because, oh, wait, I opened this book and this happened over here. Ideas of reference or the the sign lineage, right? We're just going to follow the signs. Yeah. That there's also something that I find that's novel today where people, and this is happening in a lot of different places from tulpamancy to, you know, some of the ways people are working with anomalies and ghost hunters where there's a kind of like disenchanted form of the paranormal where people are interested in practicing or in doing things that make things happen that are outside the norm and that then become a source of meaning or playfulness or agency or action that have the character of, you know, again, like uh, some kind of magical thinking or even magical thinking that has this quasi-paranoid quality. And yet there's a sort of playfulness in it. It also acknowledges how reason alone is just not going to cut it where we're at. And one of the things that I get in trouble when I go on a conspiracy critique is that people just immediately assume that I'm just defending the New York Times and the physics textbook you read in college. That you're Michael Shermer's best friend or whatever. No, I have people say, oh, I thought you were, you know, anti-establishment. I didn't realize you were establishment, you know, that kind of thing, which always irritates me because it's like, no, 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 I'm more paranoid than you. (laughs) I don't trust the people who are revealing the secrets. Yeah. (laughs) I'm even more skeptical than you are. That doesn't mean I don't have certain beliefs about the laws of physics and how people act that are very realistic and very pragmatic and very ordinary and everyday, the way that people who are truly bonkers don't really deal with that level. I very much have a lot of pragmatism and realism in my view of the world, but it doesn't rest on reason. It rests on well, these are the most helpful magic tricks I can come up with, given the enormity of the ontological chaos that we confront. So I, I'm so glad you used the word chaos. I, I mean, I feel as meditators, you get used to resting on either the void or pure chaos as like the given. Yeah. Right? The background is definitely completely contingent. Yeah. Now, I'm curious, when you say technologically sophisticated, I assume you don't mean like the tarot app on their cell phone. No, there's like a new thing I was just reading about recently. I'm going to forget that it's like called Randomator or something like that. It's a, a random number generator that is linked to a geolocator so that basically it reads the anomalies in your area. Mm. So people are using it to kind of like explore space because it's like this will tell you some place to go. So it's sort of like psychogeographical, synchronistic, and 
you know, also kind of has a game-like structure, but it's not structured into like a meta game, at least as far as I understand it. And it's just like taken off. People love it. They're totally into it. And I think there's something about like, it's all over TikTok or whatever. It's like a, a lot of young people are doing it. I think it's a way of tapping into what the occult gives you or what these esoteric paths, which, you know, in some ways are playing with the meaning-making powers of paranoia, of bringing signs together, of weaving that pattern-making side of us, but not doing it in an authoritarian way. Instead, it's just this weird device that's more like kind of sci-fi. And that, I feel like, is one of the ways that you get to learn that the world is more magical than you thought it was, but that doesn't mean that you buy the story that you're getting from this particular magician. It's like the same teaching as spiritualism. It's like, okay, we've managed to connect with the spirits from the other side. And they might not know anything. And they don't seem to know <laughs> shit. And why should they? They're not any smarter than we are. Like, what makes you think you get on the other side and suddenly you become brilliant? You're, you're full of gobbledygook. So it, there, there's a certain kind of like coming back to, some people use the word sovereignty. I also don't like that one. But something about you just taking responsibility for your own processing of reality. You're recognizing both your capacity to use reason to break down the fuzz, but also that only gets you so far. And so you have to rely on intuition. And But you're ultimately responsible for this process, which makes you a sort of like a, a little bit of a monad moving through this kind of field. And that seems to me a more healthy response than the desire to resonate with or to believe a much larger belief structure, which really just wants you to repeat a mimetic position and sort of massify this you know, cluster of worldviews or this collective worldview, it's much better to be like screwing with the stuff in your lab with your friends and passing notes back and forth with other crews through the internet than in just being absorbed. It's not already been made into a giant organism that, that's available on YouTube and has t-shirts or whatever yeah. for sale. I only watched the first one, but what's the name of the show about the caves in Kentucky? You seen that? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, Heller. Yeah, yeah. What a great idea, right? Yeah. It's like okay, we know that they're making it up, and yet it has all the seeming veracity of a documentary. And even though you know they're making it up, you keep getting drawn into the narrative as real. Yeah, and you got to step back and forth across the line over and over again, like many times in one episode yeah like oh wow wow that's really cool oh wait a minute they're making it up yeah again and again and again and watch yourself do that thing i just thought it was very sophisticated and yeah fascinating. i thought it was great and and one of the things they did really well is that they highlighted something that is not generally brought forward in those fictions but it's very much part of the culture of the paranormal and and these weird conspiracies and zone which is what some people call research synchronicities and that's just not the like synchronicity like you know you were just talking to your mom about clowns with purple hats and you go outside and there's a clown with a purple hat he's giving you saying hey how you doing <laughs> it's not that kind of synchronicity it's like you're reading about this thing and then another book opens to a different page and oh wait god it's the same thing that's on that and then you just happen to turn on the tv or you get an email and you're like yeah if you think about it. it's like the data the knowledge base, the archive itself starts to wake up and show you kinds of patterns. And a lot of magic like is that, about that. That happens all the time whenever you research anything. Yeah, right? it does. And is there a term for that in the research world? <sighs> There's some people call it's like the angel of the library. Nice. I've heard that one. I've totally had those happen. Like I'm in, you know, some shop in Prague and I'm like going through, it's like all these foreign books and I, well, it's this thing and reach up and it's like, you know, a magazine is just about the thing that I'm studying. This like weird California esoteric group. And I'm like, whoa, or like <laughs> one of the best ones I had was I was just going to start writing my senior thesis on Philip K. Dick. I mean, I guess it was a little bit before that, not too far. I was, I was definitely into PKD. And, you know, it was just kind of like starting to blow my mind. And I was in France and we were on a train with some friends. And it was super weird. Like I, even when I tell a story, it's like it doesn't seem like it's quite real. Or so we're on a train to Marseille from Paris to Marseille. This guy gets on, this African dude, and he pulled the shade 
of the kind of closed room on the train. And then he managed to sort of change his clothes, but in a not, you know, exposing way into these overalls. Like he kind of got out of his work clothes. I can't quite remember. And then he rolled like a double joint, like where there's like one carb in the middle and two spleefs coming out to the side and with really good hash. And so he lit up and we'd pass it around. And then everybody else proceeded to just pass out, (laughs) including him. But he had brought with him a whole stack of Metal Hurlon, which was the heavy metal, the cartoon yeah, magazine yeah. from the 70s. Mobius. But in French, right, with Mobius or whatever. And he, he had like 15 of these things, right? And I'm super blazed now. Like, I'm like, you know, it's all, it's like a bordering on psychedelic. And I just, you know, randomly pick one of them. And then I randomly open that page to whatever page. And it's the first page of like... Uh, R. Crumb's illustration of the religious experience of Philip K. Dick, which I didn't know existed. It had just been out a couple of years. You know, I, it's something that I've used, but it's this picture of Dick with like a third eye. And it's oh, like yeah, it's beaming a great right picture. at us. She was yeah. totally, you know, and I like got the transmission. And I've had that of all sorts of synchronicities like that around Philip K. Dick, which is all about that. Like if you read Dick, it's like there's all these living books these books that change, the books like these divinatory texts like the I Ching, but then they take these science fictional forms and they have memes and viruses that get alive. And it's just the same topic that we've been talking about, about how fictions or ideas or memes do have a kind of life to them. And we are hosts to them. And there's an aspect of that hosting process that's really creepy. And that part of being a, trying to be awake is not fully identifying with the parasites that you walk around with in your head. And it's kind of a dark way of looking at the world, but it's also survival skills in the 21st century, at least to my mind. So I think when fictions like Heller play with those kind of research synchronicities in a weird way, they're actually kind of true, even though they're constructed in advance, so it's not a real synchronicity. And in what way are they true? What are you pointing to there? Because in some ways you also are just watching the thing that's yeah. trying to come into you. And, and that those ideas are partly fictions. I guess that's what I mean, is that the ideas we have about the world are, at least in part, but oftentimes largely fictions. So when we're just talking about, oh, that's just a fiction, you're like, yeah, that's one side of the spectrum that include all these things like what I actually think is going on with the world or what my idea is about politics or what my idea is about what China is doing or what my idea is about the microchips and the vaccine, that there's all these kind of variations of fiction. And I'm not saying it's all fiction. I do think that, you know, scientific practices produce things that are called facts and that the facts have a different sort of ontological character than fictions do and you have to treat them differently but it's not because they're the capital t truth and everything else is a bunch of hooey there's clearly some profound way that fictionality is woven into the intimate and immediate experience of the world that we have as human beings so when you certain fictions about fictions particularly ones that are meta that play with those levels that have tricks in them or like a Philip K. Dick novel or a postmodern fiction or pension, even though they're much less realistic than a classic 19th century novel by Zola or whatever, in a lot of ways, they're actually closer to what they really are, which is this sort of mimetic, vibrational, ironic world of idea viruses that are trying to propagate themselves. They keep pointing at the thing, right? Yeah. Even if they're doing it in a cartoony way. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, uh, thank you for recording an audio version of High Weirdness, because I was just a paper book every once in a while these days. It's hard to get to it. But now that there's an audio version, I've read most of the book, right? Almost through it. It's fabulous fun. And the thing that surprised me is how relevant their work is. Like, Philip K. Dick and Robert Anton Wilson, especially. I mean, it's like they, in some way, were like super sensitive canaries in the coal mine for mimetic warfare and wrote all about it in a super funky, kind of disturbing and, you know, 1960s, 1970s way. But it's so relevant for the whole world now, you know, because of their drugs. And their metaphysical worldviews and their paranoia and their outsiderness and random factors, they were maybe some of the first people to notice this shit. 
But I just kept going, wow, this is so about now. Yeah, no, it's it's true. If I was a savvier, cannier character, I would have, you know, done some very pop book that's about like, you know, Philip K. Dick has predicted our reality predicted now. The future. Or like, here's how to look, <laughs> how to surf the chaos with Philip K. Dick and Robert Anton Wilson or something like that. Because I think it's really true, and I think that in some ways they were. I won't say they were prophets, but that it is rewarding to read them in a prophetic mode, which doesn't mean that they're predicting exactly what's happening, but that they were able to sort of ride these trends and kind of scenario cast and even be kind of captured by possibilities that were in the space. And so that's why it's important they were in California, because a lot of this stuff comes through California, whether it's like the internet logic or, you know, where do we see the first modern psychedelic explosion in the West outside of the lab? Oh, it's in California. You know, and so much of the futurism and that weird way that like altered states of consciousness kind of became part of the state apparatus with like the Stanford Research Institute. I mean, you start going down, you guys want to go on a good rabbit hole, like go start studying this Stanford Research Institute, but don't just tell me this stuff about, oh, well, then I mean, it's so much more interesting, if more intricate and even more insidious from the way that I see it. And that's what I mean is like there's layers within layers and a lot of them are kind of focalized through California. So even just the biographies of these guys, they were very marginal people. Nobody really paid them much mind. They were just in these weird little worlds and yet they were in certain ways set up to channel, if you will, intuitions about the state of things that I think are you know illuminating in a kind of queasy pink light. <laughs> You know, on the topic of high weirdness, you know, you finished this gigantic book. It must have been like a lifetime of research to get that thing out. So after you have this kind of release of this magnum opus, what are you doing now? Yeah, it took me about a year to recover and sort of do a lot of podcasts and think about it. And those podcasts were part of what helped me see how relevant it was. Like in a way, I was writing as a historian about a certain period of time. And, I, you know, I, I recognized the resonances when I was writing, but as I started talking to people, it just ended up talking more and more about just our moment. And that was really interesting. But especially when kind of COVID hit and I felt a sense of sort of existential drift and a lack of kind of coherence. And so I needed like a project, but I wanted one that was really immediate and direct. And so I started this, I guess you call it a mailing list, a newsletter, an online publication, a journal called The Burning Shore, which is using a really great platform called Substack. And Substack's really cool because it's designed, it's a really cool company. It's not trying to be like the be all end all of analytics or marketing or whatever. It's really designed for writers and creative people to make them buck, you know, to put their stuff out there and have their followers. So it's like integrates, you know, Patreon into a listserv or a newsletter. Now, isn't that like a line from Terrapin Station or something? Some far part of my mind is like... Which the, is the line? The Burning Shore. No, it's from Estimated Profit. Yeah, I knew yeah. it. Yeah, there we yeah go. no, it's it's very explicitly a dead reference. The fact that I actually know any dead lyrics is kind of a miracle. Oh, okay, well, no, you got that. It's pretty good. No, that's actually my favorite John Perry Barlow song. You know, most all the great songs are Robert Hunter, you know, on the lyrics. But that's a Barlow tune, and it's a tune about California, and it's about religious experience. And it's about how people get inflated with, you know, they have these crazy experiences and then they see God and the angels and they're a prophet, but they're also kind of full of shit. And it's just a very California song. And it also kind of captures a lot of what I wanted to do with this project, which is to kind of both reflect on my own life as a Californian, as a fifth generation Californian, and as somebody who studied California in many ways, most of my writing has actually been kind of about or focalized through California, even if it wasn't explicit. I wrote one book, The Visionary State, that's about alternative religion in California. But really, they're all kind of California books. And part of the reason I was doing it is that at this point, partly because of my age, partly because of the sense of like, you know, you start getting into your 50s or whatever, you, you realize you're sort of aging out of the culture in a weird way. Like there's a lot more people who don't care about your frame of references, don't care about you or what you're doing. So that's actually kind of an interesting place to kind of like reflect on what that is. Like, what do I actually carry? 
you know, what has marked me, not in a narcissistic way. In fact, it's the opposite. I realize that the more explicit I am about the personal things that have marked me, and what I mean by that is like, transmissions I've received or resonances or influences that I've picked up that became part of my worldview or part of my practice, whether it's the Grateful Dead, whether it's psychedelics, you know, hanging out with Terrence McKenna, all of it, you know, all the things that have kind of made me who I am. It's kind of interesting. It's like, that's kind of a weird guy. So like, where does this come from? But by like embedding it in my own personal history and my relationship with the land and the places that here and my family that's been here, it actually kind of allows it both to give it body and it lets me let go. So it's actually part of deconstructing myself. It's not finding myself. (laughs) It's using this process of reflection as material and then writing my way through it and also just like riffing on other things that are happening and you know all the kind of zones that are going down from you know writing about the watts riots or writing about poison oak or whatever so it's i could have like three years of topics just off the top of my head and so i'm really happy about this form and then i get the final thing i'd say about it is It's small enough, and because I'm in charge, I can play with it exactly how I want it to be. And my whole life has all been pretty independent. I've been a pretty independent person. I didn't, even when I was a freelance writer, I didn't quite write about the other stuff people wrote about. I was always very aware of my difference, kind of in a neurotic way, in some ways, or a narcissistic wound kind of way, for sure. But in a way, now I've sort of released myself into that independence so I can just do exactly what I want to do, so it's very freeing and it's also my favorite length of writing it's like the 1500 2000 word piece start something going you got some data you give it a big twist and a nice resolution throw some quotes in or whatever it's not like there's a formula but it's just a great length it's what i cut my teeth on in writing for the village voice in the early 90s when i really developed my voice So it's kind of like a return to a more personal kind of writing, a more opinionated, more kind of snazzy, slangy, getting away from the academic writing that I was doing. And so it's much less dense than that book. So I'm kind of finding my way to another version of my voice. So I'm really enjoying it. And so this is a email newsletter that people can subscribe to. Yeah. So it's like ericdavis.substack.com. We'll put it in the show notes. Good. Link in the show notes. Yeah. Eric, thank you so much for joining me here again in the studio on Broadway in San Francisco. Absolutely. It's great to be here without Uh, our masks. Without our masks. That's it for this episode of Deconstructing Yourself. I'd like to let you know about an upcoming retreat I have available in the first half of 2024. This April, I'll be teaching a six-day residential retreat at Mount Madonna Center in the hills of Northern California. From April 14th to the 19th, I'll be leading practitioners in non-dual meditation techniques, guided meditations, and silent sitting with the group. So if you'd like to spend six days working on deepening your spiritual practice and particularly working on your non-dual meditation with me and a group of interested folks, please consider joining me at Mount Madonna this April. Just go to the deconstructingyourself.com slash events page and follow the links you find there. I look forward to seeing you at the retreat. There will also be a meditation retreat with me coming up this August in Costa Rica. You can find out more about that at the same deconstructingyourself.com slash events page. If you enjoyed the podcast, please recommend it to a friend or talk about it on social media. Doing that helps it find its way to more people who might be interested. If you're moved to support the podcast, you can do that by contributing to the production costs on my Patreon page. That's at patreon.com slash Michael Taft. The money goes to support the recording, production, and bandwidth costs of this program, which are substantial. By contributing to Patreon, you're making it possible for me to continue to create and share these conversations as often as possible. A special perk for high-level contributors is a monthly or even bi-monthly event with me on Zoom, where you can ask me any meditation questions you have. I deeply appreciate your support. I also have a number of free resources for you, beginning with my YouTube channel. 
There are hundreds of hours of free guided meditations and videos there, so if you're interested, that's quite a large resource and offered to you completely free of charge. The channel address on YouTube is MWT111, or you can just search my name, Michael Taft. I encourage you to subscribe to the channel and join me each week for a new live guided meditation session. If you'd like to interact with a broad community of people interested in meditation, particularly those who engage with my YouTube meditations, I have a free Discord server called Deconstruct U. That's Deconstruct and then just the single capital letter U. There are a large number of discussion channels there and it's free, so hop on the server and introduce yourself. And of course, there's the deconstructingyourself.com website itself, which has articles, interviews, and more about meditation going back over 12 years at this point. So be sure to check that out. Beyond these free options, I also have a number of paid online courses to help you grow and develop in your spiritual practice. You can find out about those either by signing up for my email list at deconstructingyourself.com slash sign up or at the site deconstructingyourself.org. I look forward to seeing you in class. The Deconstructing Yourself podcast has always had excellent sound, which is the result of an amazing audio engineer and amazing human being named Stephen McNamara. He's an all-things audio person with many decades of experience in producing music and spoken word audio. If you're interested, you can contact him at his website, yogitar.com. That's Y-O-G-I-T-A-R dot com. Music on the Deconstructing Yourself podcast is a track by Peter Bauman entitled Crossing the Abyss from his album Machines of Desire. Thank you for listening. <laughs>